Hey, I'm Steph. I'm Alex. And this is Not Today. I'm great. How are you? I'm fantastic right wow. now. Wow, great. I don't think we have any podcast news as of now. Um, if you haven't heard on the many other podcasts that we've put out, um, we do have a Patreon. Check it out. It's how we continue doing it. So check it Truly. out. Truly. Yeah. But other than that, why don't we just jump right into the story? Let's jump right in. Okay. Before we begin, I did want to give a trigger warning. This story does involve conversation of sexual assault. The story we're going to talk about today takes place in the small town of Abbotsford, Canada, in British Columbia. Abbotsford is a rural city east of Vancouver. It's quiet, conservative, and religious, and has been referred to as the Bible Belt of Canada. There are probably more churches per capita in Abbotsford than in any other town in British Columbia. Fun fact, I guess. In 1995, it was considered a very safe place to live. It was around midnight of Friday the 13th of October 1995. Best friends Misty Cockrell and Tanya Smith had just gotten a ride home from a party. They were driven to Misty's house, but before going inside, the girls decided at the last minute they were going to walk over to another friend's home for a birthday party. As they walked past their high school, Misty joked with Tanya about how it was Friday the 13th and how such a silly suspicion could ever hurt them. But after getting about three blocks away from Misty's home, a man stepped out of the shadows, grabbed both of their arms, and pulled them into the hedges to be where nobody could see them. The man ordered them to undress while threatening them with a baseball bat. Misty later said in a 2004 interview for Crime Stories, quote, It's more confusion than anything, and fear, obviously, because when I looked at his face and saw his eyes, it looked like we weren't going to live through it. He was swearing at me, calling me a bitch. He had Tanya on her hands and knees. The look on Tanya's face, she had such big eyes. They just looked completely empty and lost and scared. During the attack, Misty saw an opportunity to grab the baseball bat when the attacker's attention had been shifted to Tanya. She swung the bat wildly at their attacker, hitting him in the shoulder. But unfortunately, it didn't do as much damage as she had hoped. The man struggled with Misty and was able to wrestle the baseball bat away from her grasp. The man yelled, You're going to be sorry, bitch. You're going to die. The beating that followed was vicious. Misty received multiple blows to the body and head. She counted seven times he hit her, and as she lay in the grass, she looked at her high school and wondered if it was going to be the last time she would ever see it, until she fell unconscious. And then she was left for dead. But thankfully, Misty would wake up sometime later, still laying face down behind the bushes. Bleeding and confused, she was able to sit up and look around. She noticed that Tanya and her attacker were nowhere to be found. All Misty wanted in that moment was to go home and put this night behind her, but she knew that wasn't an option. Somehow, she managed to get to her feet and start walking. Just before dawn, on October 14, 1995, Misty Cockrell stumbled her way into the lobby of Abbotsford Hospital Emergency Room covered in blood. 
Medical staff immediately rushed toward her because it was clear that she had been seriously injured. It didn't take long for doctors to discover that Misty had a fist-sized hole in her head with deeply embedded skull fragments. She had a broken arm and finger, and her core body temperature was so low from laying outside for hours that she was hypothermic and was barely conscious. But she was able to tell medical staff her name, Misty Cockrell, and that she was 16 years old, and that she had a friend, Tanya Smith, who was still out there, who had also been attacked and needed to be found. But with how badly Misty's head injuries were, she needed to be rushed into immediate emergency surgery. Thinking her attacker still may be hanging around, an orderly rushed outside to search the area, but found nothing. Staff quickly called police to report the violent attack that had taken place and that there was a possible second missing victim. Medical staff weren't sure if the extremely injured Misty had been experiencing delusions or if there actually was another missing girl out there, but by the state of Misty's injuries, I'm sure they were hoping she was mistaken. With Misty in the hospital, police began an immediate search of the surrounding area for Tanya. At 5.30 a.m., officers were called to begin their search. Misty was able to tell them that Tanya was out by the school, so they had a team of investigators searching that area to see if they could find her. But unfortunately, there was no trace of her. They were hoping Tanya had managed to escape their attacker as well, but it was possible the assailant had taken her with him, and police feared the worst. Around sunrise at 7.30 a.m., a fisherman finds the naked body of a young girl in the Vetter River, around 15 kilometers outside Abbotsford, and immediately reported it to police. The Abbotsford police send a photograph of the body to Inspector Kevin McLeod, who was the lead investigator for the RCMP, and shortly after that, he arrived at the river with Detective Kevin Hackett. Inspector McLeod confirmed that the body of the girl was 16-year-old Tanya Smith. From there, they needed to preserve as much evidence as they could, because they were very concerned about the water damage that could have been done to the forensic evidence on the body. DNA evidence, saliva, fabric, fiber evidence, all of that could be washed away in the water, so it was crucial to preserve as much as possible. It was important to ensure that the hands were put into paper bags, because in a struggle, a victim may defend themselves and strike back, which many times can lead to DNA evidence underneath their fingernails. The body was then placed into a body bag to stop any further contamination and was brought to the morgue. After searching the area, Detective McLeod made an interesting discovery. Just south of where the body had been found was a path, and not far down the path, investigators found Tanya's clothes, which had been thrown up into the trees and bushes. There had also been indications leading them to believe that this was where Tanya had been placed in the water. Tanya's clothes being left in that way was very interesting, because the killer made a very deliberate choice to display them. Investigators believed whoever this person was, they wanted her body to be discovered. There were some tire impressions and drag marks on the ground, but other than that, not much else. Nobody noticed at the time, but apparently a man had been standing on the other side of the river. And that was the man who had killed Tanya Smith and assaulted Misty Cockrell. And now he had come back to the scene of the crime to enjoy the spectacle of it all, and taunt the police, which he would continue to do. 
Terry Driver was born in 1965 into what appears to be a relatively normal childhood. He was the son to a decorated police officer, and some speculate this is the reason Terry went to so much trouble to taunt the police and to be chased by them, which we will get into more specifically in a bit. But he definitely sought the attention of the police, and it's possible he was doing that in a Freudian kind of way, because he was actually seeking the attention of his father, who worked a lot and wasn't around all that much. His father's line of work may also have given him a good amount of insight into how to evade capture for a while. He just seems so cocky. He's extremely cocky. Also, how did nobody notice him standing on the other side of the river? I mean, I don't know what it looks like. Maybe there's trees and stuff, but... Yeah, there was only one source that said that, so I don't know that to be actually true. But, oh, okay. But it does seem like that is something that he would for sure do, so... Yeah. I just, like, how... I guess how obvious was it, but that's just so wild that a few hundred feet away, the guy you're looking for is just watching you. Yeah, I mean, there were, I think, reporters there and, you know, other people and trees and things. So it wouldn't have been all that crazy to be concealed and watch from afar. But yeah, that is definitely something he would have done if he didn't actually do it. But I did watch a very interesting YouTube video from Professor Michael Drain talking about the psychology of serial killers. And he's the one who talked about Terry Driver's father being a decorated police officer and how that may have influenced his actions in taunting the police. And he did also talk about Terry having some medical conditions that could have potentially explained his psychopathy. He said he had minimal brain dysfunction and ADHD, which on their own do not create psychopathic behaviors, but brain dysfunctions can cause all kinds of personality anomalies and certain types of ADHD can lead to impulsive behaviors, OCD tendencies, and aggressive demeanor. And as a child, Terry Driver's aggressive behaviors led him to being placed into a special school from ages 6 to 11, while his younger brothers were able to stay home and go to regular school which also could have potentially made him feel more different or isolated. Sure didn't help. Yeah. By the age of 12, he started developing tics as well. By high school, Terry Driver decided he wanted to join the police to follow in his hero cop father's footsteps, but he was rejected, which I'm sure only added to his feelings of, you know, rejection and also inferiority. And I'm sure it made him feel like he could never measure up to his dad. And also could have created animosity toward the police, or the need to show that he was better than them or smarter than them. I guess makes sense. Yeah. It's horrific, though. Well, yes. But the fact that he was rejected from the police didn't stop him from acting like one. He would cruise around town at night with his father's old police radio and call in hundreds of tips to the police reporting petty thefts or crimes in his free time, like he was some vigilante or Batman. An interesting point Professor Michael Drain made about Terry Driver was that he drew his most satisfaction not from killing, like most psychopathic serial killers will, because he only killed one person that we know of, but rather he got most of his pleasure from taunting the police and sending the town of Abbotsford into absolute chaos. It was the power and thrill of the chase that he created from this cat-and-mouse game with the police. And the longer this went on the more bold he got, because he felt like he couldn't get caught. This is kind of insane. So they must know who he is if he calls in hundreds of tips. 
Like, oh, no, they don't know who he is. Well, the, the, when they recognize his voice, a hundred times, a hundred tips a night, hundreds of tips. I don't know if it was a hundred times a night, but this was just something that he would do throughout the years. Like he would, in his free time, I guess, pretend patrol. to be, yeah, like patrol and pretend to be a cop, I guess. Wow. It's just so much time and energy devoted to this insane endeavor. Definitely. But so Officer McLeod, the lead investigator on the case, said one of the first things he noticed was where Tanya's clothing had been found. He said, quote, it was tossed up into the trees and the bushes. It was very easy to find. It was almost broadcasting. Look at me. I'm right here. My initial thought was that this guy wants to be known. He wants to be found out. And the only witness they had at this time was Misty Cockrell, who was still fighting for her life in the hospital. They knew Misty had seen her attacker and had been coherent enough to give information on her way into the hospital, so even though she was unconscious for most of the time, they needed to get as much information out of her as possible. They sent a detective to sit next to Misty's bedside with a tape recorder, and whenever she regained consciousness, they would ask her questions until she would once again pass out. Misty had sustained what doctors described as at least three to four home-run-type swings to the head. So this was very major blunt force trauma. Doctors were stunned that Misty had survived this attack. Yeah, I was going to say a fist-sized hole in her skull. Yeah, with, like, fragments of her skull in that fist-sized hole. I mean, that alone is mind-boggling. And then she laid unconscious in the grass for, like, hours before she was able to get up and stumble her way to the emergency room. I mean, that is insane. I mean, I don't know how you don't, I don't know, have a stroke, uh, like, brain hemorrhaging or something. Like, that is insane that she... Not only was able to survive, but also walk herself to the hospital. Not only just walk herself to the hospital, but then tell them not only her name, but then tell staff her friend's name and where the attack happened, where her friend was, and like that her friend needed help before she was rushed into emergency surgery for a fist-sized hole in her skull. Yeah. Like, it's insane to think about. Yeah. The attack had occurred at around midnight, or 12.30, and she didn't make it to the hospital until around 4.30 a.m., so she had been laying outside on the ground for hours before she had managed to find her way into the emergency room. It was so remarkable that police wondered if someone may have even helped Misty get there. So they set up a press release and a tip line call center to see if there were any witnesses from that night. What they did know was that Misty had told them she was over by the school in the bushes, It was a fairly large area, including behind the hospital. So they had teams going through the bushes behind the school and behind the hospital, but after three days, there was still no trace of the attack site. It wasn't until the 18th, four days after the attack, that they were able to establish where the attack had taken place when one of the detectives found a hoop earring that had been knocked off of Misty in the dirt, but the rain had washed away the girl's blood. That's what I was going to ask about. I was going to say, there has to be blood everywhere. Nope. At the scene. Unfortunately not. not. The attack had been late at night, but there had been at least two witnesses who had heard the girl's screams. It was a very residential area, which made it a very high-risk place for such a brutal attack. But that was part of the thrill for this attacker. 
So that was also very telling for the police. They're like, this is a very interesting place because there could have been witnesses. And I mean, nobody physically saw it, but people heard it. Yeah. Did they not call the cops? I guess not at the time. Yeah. That same day, police received a report of an object that may have been related to the case not far from the river where Tanya's body had been found. A local farmer had found a baseball bat floating in the ditch. That wasn't there the day before. They knew from Misty that her attacker had used a baseball bat, so it was likely his weapon. That same day, Detective McLeod was manning the tip line when they got an anonymous call from a man claiming he had driven Misty Cockerell to the hospital, which was weird because Misty had walked. When Officer McLeod tried to ask this person to come into the station, that way they could ask him some questions to help out on the case, Terry Driver refused. It didn't take long before Terry became bored of these anonymous calls and sought more thrill out of taunting the police. Tanya Smith's funeral drew a large group of people from all over Abbotsford, including the police, because the police believed Tanya's murderer may choose to attend that day as well. And they were right. Terry Driver did attend Tanya Smith's funeral, but they didn't know who he was. And he didn't raise his hand, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, how would they? Right. On October 17th, 3.35 p.m., a second call was made to the police. Terry Driver called once again, and he was done with being anonymous. This time, he gave police details about the murder that only the killer would know, including information about a bite mark left on Tanya's body that hadn't been released to the public which is when police knew for certain they were speaking with the Abbotsford killer. The police were able to trace the call to a payphone at the Abbotsford arena, but by the time they made it there, there was nobody at the phone. And when they dusted the phone for fingerprints, it had been wiped clean. Only a few hours later, as if he couldn't help himself, Terry Driver called once again and said, quote, you don't think I'd be stupid enough to leave fingerprints behind when I make a phone call, do you? And that second call of the day was untraceable, but that led them to believe that he had been watching them at that payphone. A third call was made only 20 minutes later, this time to a police tip line. Driver said, I'm the one. I'm giving you a chance to come and find me. I'll be cruising around looking for someone else. So now this is like a direct threat. He's basically saying, I'm going to go kill someone else in the community. And Abbotsford, as a community, as a city, was terrified. Of course. I mean, of course they were. Two 16-year-olds were attacked, one of which was murdered. But everyone was in shock. The whole town was terrified. The police and investigators included, everyone was giving this their all to try and find this guy. But he was like a ghost. Yeah, I mean, if he's smart enough, it's really hard to find someone. Yeah. So to help apprehend this killer, a telecommunications company developed a technology to assist in the investigation. They were able to put a remote answering system that would show them when a 911 call was coming into the dispatch center from a payphone. And before the dispatcher answered the call, they'd be able to tell where that phone call was coming from and then dispatch a car to that location. And they had patrol cars stationed in the areas where they had already had calls from 
basically waiting to respond should he call from a phone in the nearby area again. This is when the media started to really blow up, and rumors started really circulating that there was a killer on the loose who was going to kill again. And the police suggested that women in particular be very careful, which of course led to a lot of fear in the community, like I said. Thousands of calls flooded into the tip line from people who wanted to help catch this murderer. People in the community were desperate to get this killer caught, and the investigation team was doing everything they could. According to Officer McLeod, their team put their lives on hold and put everything into this case. Over the span of the Abbotsford killer investigation, it cost more than $2 million. More than 9,400 people were questioned, and 3,800 suspects had to be eliminated before Terry Driver was arrested. That's, for one town, Yeah, that's insane. That's so much resources. I know. I don't think they were probably doing anything else. No, they weren't. Next to anything else the whole time. Right. Which is exactly what he wanted, right? Yes, he wanted all attention on him. (sighs) You know, what an asshole. (laughs) That's an understatement. (laughs) What an asshole. At that point, they found out that there was no DNA evidence on the baseball bat, so it couldn't be linked to the crime, which sucked. But a forensic artist was sent to Misty in the hospital, who was still in critical condition, to create a composite sketch. She told them that he was a Caucasian male, he had a slim face, slightly thinning hair, a drooping mustache, and a high forehead. On October 20th, the quote-unquote face of the Abbotsford killer appeared in all of the newspapers. That, too, led to a lot of tips from the public. The only problem was the sketch looked nothing like Terry Driver. Did they not have her look at the final product? Well, they I'm sure they did, but it was dark, it was fast, and she was brutally beaten, so... yeah. There's only so much you can really remember, I'm sure. Yeah, I know. It's just like, I mean, fuck. It doesn't even look like him. It really didn't look like him, no. He's just getting so lucky. Yeah. Like it rained. The people heard him, but just didn't call the cops because, I don't know, maybe they thought it was something else or for whatever reason. And now this. I know. But his luck will run out. Eventually. Eventually. If it makes you feel any better. Uh, It sounds like we got a ways to go. We do. We have about uh, $2 million. Yeah. Yeah. We do have $2 million to exhaust before he's caught, unfortunately. During Tanya's autopsy, it had been determined that her cause of death was not from blunt force trauma, but it had been due to drowning. Although experts believed her injuries would have led to her death eventually, she was still alive when her attacker threw her body in the river, which is officially what killed her. Which is just awful to think about. I know. Although the forensics team was concerned that much of the evidence would have been destroyed due to her body being in the water for so long, they were able to recover a significant amount of evidence. Tanya had been beaten, sexually assaulted, and bitten before her body was disposed of. And the forensics team was able to collect semen from Tanya's body, which, as we know, is DNA evidence. But also, they were able to get saliva from the bite mark, which was actually very surprising. When collecting bite mark evidence, there's a specific protocol forensic odontologists follow, according to David Sweet. 
swabbing the skin as an initial examination, looking at the physical evidence as a result from the teeth interacting with the skin, photographing the bite mark extensively in order to record the patterns and shapes in reference to a scale or ruler placed near the bite mark, and in addition to that, they take a cast or mold of the skin to record any undulations or differences in the surface from normal. David Sweet felt like attempting to collect saliva from the bite mark would be a long shot, considering she had been in the water for so long. But he tried a new method to collect it anyway, and this new method actually did work. They got a partial DNA result, which was huge. So they had the killer's DNA. Now they just had to find the guy. Although they did decide to keep that information from the public, because they didn't want the murderer knowing what evidence they had. Isn't that cool, though? Yeah, I mean, I can't believe that they got anything after she was in the water for that long. But, yeah, I mean, he just ad-libbed a new technique. Kind of. That worked. That happens actually a few times in this case. There's, like, a few new forensic techniques they use in this case, and it ends up working twice. Yeah, it kind of seems like a lot of innovations happening in just one case. Like, they're getting the location of 911 calls and then this new technique. Sounds like Abbotsford PD is, like, really on their game. Yeah, actually, now that you mention it, they did create that new technology to trace the phone call to the payphone and to, like, dispatch police cars. But there's even another forensic technique that we haven't even talked about yet. Really? Yeah, so this is, so I guess that's three things. Cool. After 12 days of silence, Terry Driver called once again, but police were unable to get to the payphone in time to arrest him. They knew the investigation was stalling, so they decided to turn to forensic psychology. They wanted to create a possible psychological profile of the killer to use it against him. And I'm pretty sure this was even new, kind of at the time. Creating like a psychological profile of the killer? It was like kind of risky at the time to like use a, a profile of the killer yeah i'm trying to think of when it was like mind hunter you know what i'm talking yeah, about yeah um, that's what i'm thinking i was trying to remember what year that show was based in i want to say it was the mid 80s but yeah it was it was around that it was like 70s 80s i want to say but this is 95 so it was like still new ish yeah i mean i'm sure it wasn't a discipline yet yeah but so they wanted to create a psychological profile on him because they're like hey might as well try anything at this point 24 days after the attack, the police set up a call-in line where people could listen to samples of the killer's phone calls. They also broadcast these calls on news stations and on the radio, hoping that someone would recognize his voice. After police did this, the city was terrified. Nobody was walking around at night. It was very quiet in Abbotsford because people were scared. Well, who can blame them? I don't blame them. And finally, on December 1st, there was a new development in the investigation. Investigators arrested a man who looked exactly like the sketch of the killer. He was well known to the police, but very quickly agreed to give a DNA sample and a dental imprint. And soon enough, he was cleared because, as we know, the sketch looked nothing like Terry Driver. And that wasn't the first time that this happened. Over the course of this investigation, they received over 9,400 tips, like I mentioned earlier, and most of these were people being identified as possible suspects. They got a lot of lookalikes to the drawing and a lot of soundalikes to the voice, because people were just extremely eager to help. 
But by that time, the killer hadn't contacted the police for weeks, and his silence was weighing very heavily on them. Psychologists decided the best way to get to him was to play on his narcissism and exploit his ego. So they put out a fake news report saying, quote, psychologists say suspect has given up taunts because the risk is too high, meaning he can't take it anymore. It said he had even possibly left the area because it had all become too much for him. So he had quit. Wow. That's such a wild thing to put in the news. Yeah. They basically were like, he... He's a little bitch. He's a little loser, and he quit. And this and worked. he's going to respond to it. Yeah, it worked. February 17th, the killer backed his car into the parking lot of a radio station, as if to retaliate for this ad in the paper. And while on air, the radio station got a call from the killer saying they should go downstairs and look at the Radio Max car in the parking lot. Radio host Mike Giacconi went downstairs to find Tanya Smith's headstone placed on the hood of the radio station company car. Her headstone had been etched with threats, including a direct threat to Misty Cockrell. And amazingly enough, no one had seen Terry Driver do that. Investigators felt like they were chasing a ghost at that point because they're like, how did nobody see a man back into a radio station parking lot and pull out a headstone and put it on a car. I didn't even put together that it was... That's what I said. Like a gravestone. Like her headstone. Like what you see in a cemetery. Oh my God. I mean, that thing's got to weigh like what? It's At a, least 100 pounds. At least. It's not light. No. You don't move fast with it. And putting it on a the hood of a car is not quiet either. No. So it's kind of insane that nobody saw him but i guess also everyone's broadcasting I, I don't know yeah but just super lucky again yeah i guess it's just weird yeah and it's awful that he wrote threats to misty on there as if he hasn't done enough to her i mean we we know clearly he's not a good person already but you've done enough yeah, well, I mean, I hope they're keeping her safe anyway. Well, yeah, she was absolutely under police watch at the hospital. Like, she was under guard, but yeah, still, I guess this is just like he's upping the ante because they hurt his feelings in that ad. Well, good. He's going to make a mistake eventually. We'll wait and find out. So, although the police's plan to bait Terry Driver worked, it also created chaos in Abbotsford. Because this situation was so shocking to the people of Abbotsford. They were so terrified of this man. They stopped letting their children go out unattended. Teenagers were told only to go out in pairs of two. And people were actually moving out of town. Two days later, Terry called the police and asked them if they liked his gift. That call was made from a payphone only two blocks from the police station, and yet he still managed to disappear without a trace. There were witnesses to this call, but nothing led to a suspect. Whoa, that's so bold. Yeah, he's incredibly bold. On February 21st, Driver threw a wrench through a random neighborhood window, taped to an envelope with a note inside. The note was typewritten with no punctuation, and in it, he outlined everything he had done in the attack, as well as confessed to three other assaults, and included newspaper clippings with details confirming his claims. 
which meant that Tanya and Misty were not his first victims. At the end of the note, he said, You won't catch me, I'm not going to move out of town, and I will strike again. Goodbye for now. It was written in an almost friendly way, which was very strange. Forensic scientists analyzed every millimeter of this note, envelope, and wrench, and found almost nothing on it. But they used a new technique on the sticky side of the tape, because they figured if any place is going to hold a fingerprint, it's gonna be the tape. So they used a powder called sticky side powder, which is basically a powder that you mix with a solution that suspends the powder, and then you wash it over the tape, and it'll stick to the glued side of the tape where the finger has touched, and they were able to find a very faint index fingerprint. Wow. Isn't that cool? That's really smart. Yeah, I guess you would never think, like, you have to... Touch it. Touch the inside, yeah. Right. Okay, so now, out of everything we know, what do you think did Terry Driver in? What's your guess? The way you're asking the question makes me think that it wasn't the location thing. I don't know. I feel like it might be he actually tries to go back to the hospital to get Misty. Interesting. That would be very bold, which... It doesn't seem too much for him. We know he doesn't shy away from... I mean, from. maybe that's too stupid, but I guess the easy one would just be he makes a payphone call that they're already at. That's also a good guess. Those are my two. Okay, those are your two. Okay, so the fingerprint was sent to the Canadian Fingerprint Database as well as the FBI for comparison, but they got negative results. So this person had no criminal record. But what actually did Terry Driver in wasn't his fingerprint or his DNA, but his own mother. His own mom. Yes. Seven months after the attack, the police digitally enhanced the phone calls from the killer and made them public once again. And they made it so you could call in and listen to these recordings over and over as many times as you wanted. So Audrey Teague, Terry's mother, showed these recordings to Terry's siblings, and they agreed that it sounded like Terry. And the next day, Terry's mother called into the police claiming she believed the voice of the Abbotsford killer belonged to her son. And he fished at the Vetter River, and he went to Tanya Smith's funeral. So all these things were very strange to her. When the police came to talk to Terry Driver, they treated him like every other possible suspect. They didn't want to tell him that his mother had ratted him out, so they told him that <laughs> so they told him that someone had called into the tip line and said that he looked like the composite sketch, which he disagreed with because he didn't. The officers gave him the opportunity to come voluntarily down to the station to talk to provide them with fingerprints and a DNA sample, like they did for every other suspect, but he declined. And at that point, they had very few people who didn't cooperate with them. So they were immediately suspicious of Terry Driver. Almost everyone had been very quick to cooperate with them to eliminate themselves because it was such a horrific crime that nobody wanted anything to do with. But at that point, they couldn't force Terry Driver to give them DNA or come with them without a warrant. So they had to continue with their investigation. They found that 31-year-old Terry Driver was married with two young children, 
and he worked he's married with kids oh yeah oh yeah what the fuck dude he's a family man yep wow i mean helps him blend in i guess yep he worked in a printing house and he had no criminal record and his father was a retired police officer surprisingly that night terry called his boss and asked him what he should do he told them that the police were suspicious of him and his boss was like well are you guilty and terry of course said no so his boss was like okay so then go to the police station and cooperate if you didn't do anything then you have nothing to worry about right right terry right terry right you have nothing to worry about terry Terry then consulted a lawyer, and with a few conditions, he agreed to cooperate. He wasn't going to give DNA, but he would answer questions and give fingerprints, as long as they destroyed them after they examined them. At that point, he didn't know the police had the fingerprints of the killer because they never released that to the public. And nobody fucking ratted either. Yeah. So, accompanied by his lawyer, he went to the police station and gave his prints. The investigators had spent so much time looking at that one print they had, so they knew exactly what they were looking for. Almost immediately after rolling his prints, they took the paper with the prints on them into the next room and compared the print to his and knew it was a match. They double and triple checked it, But he had a distinct portion of the print in the center they had been calling the hockey stick. And when they saw that on Terry Driver's print, they knew it was him. Of course they called it the hockey stick. Well, because they have like (laughs) fingerprints have like loops and like certain distinctive things. But like Canada. Oh, yeah, that is Canada. That's funny. Yeah. So they were calling his distinctive loop a hockey stick. And so Terry Driver's prints matched the print of the killer. Yeah, I mean, this is crazy. Isn't it? Do they just have him wait in the other room while they try and go get a warrant? No, no, no. No, he literally rolled his prints, and immediately after, they took the prints in the other room, examined it five seconds later, and then not 30 seconds after that, they had him in cuffs. Wow. This took minutes. And this was all because of that new fingerprint powder. Yeah. Technique thing. Yes, Isn't that so... Hats off to the police. That's pretty amazing work. Isn't that so cool? Yeah. So they arrested him right then and there. (laughs) I mean, for how much chaos he caused, the ending was anticlimactic. It was very quick and swift. I loved it. I mean, it's great. I think it's amazing that his mom turned I think it's poetic. Yeah. It's just so counter to the whole case, like how it's been going. I think it's perfect because it's like he thought he was so smart and he loved the drama and he loved the chaos and he wanted like all that craziness and he he had such an anticlimactic ending and he was such a dummy that this is a perfect ending for him. Yeah. He he, this is exactly the opposite of what he would have wanted, you know? Yeah. Screw him. Hey, I'm with you on that. You know? Yeah. Perfect. And even better, there had been a $10,000 reward that had been put up by the city for whoever turned in the Abbotsford killer, and Terry Driver's family got the reward. That's funny. Which I mean, I mean but... which maybe kind of is like, that sucks because it's like the killer's family got the reward, but also like they turned him in. So like, good on good to his mom. Like, thank yeah, you. Yeah, I mean, it sounded like, I mean, I'm sure it's never easy to do that, but 
she still did it. Yeah, and she very clearly didn't know that he was doing that. It's not like they were covering it up Yeah. when it happened. Yeah, it is kind of crazy, though, that they didn't think it might be him the first time the calls came out, though. Well, they enhanced the calls. So I think that maybe yeah, his voice was, like, grainier or, like, it just wasn't as easy to hear or something. Yeah, I'm not blaming them. It's just it took the enhancement. It, like, took so many things to get him. Yeah. But it's, I guess, I, I just don't know. I'm sure the sound quality was not great because it was from a payphone. Yeah. Right? But I don't know. I guess you would at least recognize or think maybe. What? It was him. Oh, yeah, maybe. Maybe they suspected, but like, but you don't want to believe it. And then once the the enhanced calls came out, it's like, okay, you can't really yeah, also, deny it. Yeah, also, how many other people were turned in? Like 9,400. Yes, so many. So, you know, it sounds like it sounded like a lot of other people too. Exactly, right. The police were extremely relieved that an arrest had been made. But as far as they were concerned... That was really when their work started, because the clock was now ticking on when the trial would begin, and they had to build a strong case against him. They continued to collect evidence against him. They got his cell phone evidence and collected his dental impressions for the bite mark evidence, as well as his DNA. And it was prosecutor Neil McKenzie's job to prove he was guilty of attempted murder in the case of Misty Cockrell and first-degree murder in the case of Tanya Smith. And that wasn't going to be too difficult, because they had an overwhelming amount of physical evidence. Yet, despite the evidence against him, Terry Driver pled not guilty. He admitted to rape, but not to murder. First, apparently, he said it was manslaughter. He claimed it was manslaughter because he had put Tanya's body in the river, and she had drowned as a result. He claimed he believed she was already dead, and realized later that she had drowned when he heard the news reports. So that's why, according to him, it would have been manslaughter instead of murder. Uh, which is I don't know about the definitions in Canada, but... Bullshit. Yeah, it sounds like that doesn't make any sense. It makes no sense. That's, that's bullshit. That's post you... I mean, either way, you killed her. He's like, I thought right? she was dead, so I didn't kill her, because... What do you... What do you mean? What? What do you mean? What? Huh? But then... On the stand, he said he never beat the girls. He said he saw a mystery man running from the scene. And then he said, yes, he had raped Tanya, but there was no evidence that he was the person who threw her in the river and killed her because her official cause of death was drowning. Yeah, this jury's not going to want to hear any of this shit. No, but yeah, and what went against that was the fact that he had written a letter talking about a baseball bat, and he had called in talking about how he had dropped Misty off at the hospital, which they knew was not true. So he was not considered credible in any way. He was very much a liar. Yeah, I'm sure that that wasn't hard to prove no. or demonstrate. Yeah, and he sat there with no emotion, no remorse whatsoever. And almost two years after the attack on Misty and Tanya, Terry Driver was convicted of first-degree murder and attempted murder and was sentenced to life with the possibility of parole after 25 years. In a separate trial, Driver was also found guilty of the three attacks that he confessed to in the note that he threw, that he threw through the window. Hmm. That's funny. Threw through the window. That makes sense, but it sounds silly. Terry Driver may never have gotten caught if it wasn't for his arrogance or his belief that he was too smart. 
but he was just arrogant enough, you know? Yeah. I was going to say, dude, just shut up if you if you were really smart. I mean, wouldn't all he would have had to do was just move to another town? I guess I mean, I much. guess not even. Yeah, in this case, not even. This was also 1995, so. What does that mean? Like, like the forensics maybe wasn't as good then, but. Sounds like it was pretty damn good. That's true. They actually they did amazing forensic work on this. Yeah, I mean, they this. got his DNA immediately. Yeah, they did. He just didn't have a criminal record. So. Yeah. Yeah, he was like a family man, you know? Disgusting. I know. Also, how did, how does his wife feel? Like, did she have any inkling? I have not seen anything about his wife in the research I have done. I mean, I'm sure not. I mean, she. <laughs> I would want to be a ghost uh-huh. if I were her, but just a surreal experience like horrific to find that out that it's your husband and father of your children yeah uh-huh a monster yeah well thankfully he was too arrogant for his own good because it did lead to him getting caught you know yeah. initially hearing the verdict of life in prison was a huge weight that had been lifted off of misty's shoulders she said quote it was the end of what happened to me and the beginning of what i can do about it after that time, Misty focused on what she could do. She volunteered for Youth Against Violence. She wanted to do something good. She didn't want Tanya's death to be a waste. She's a mom. Um, and in 2020, it had been difficult again for Misty because Terry Driver was able to apply for parole. The possibility that he would be released is one of the ways Misty Cockrell says she was re-victimized and re-traumatized throughout the criminal justice process. She said, I suddenly had this fear that I had 25 years ago when I was hiding, thinking, what if he gets out? Then I have to leave Abbotsford right away with my kids. I feel like I'm in danger again. However, that fear was gone once again when in August of 2021, Terry Driver died in prison. She said, I'm not sad about it at all, but it's still a lot of shock and trying to process what's going on. This is kind of a newfound chapter of freedom. I don't have to worry about upcoming parole hearings. I don't have to worry about whether he'll ever be released or not and whether my family's safe. Now I know that they are, and it's a relief. Advocating for victims of crime is something that Misty says has brought her some healing, and speaking out about what it's like to be victimized is something she says has connected her to people who appreciate her efforts to give victims a voice. She said being a victim can be lonely because nobody really talks about it. Not everybody has experienced it, thank God. And so the people that don't experience it don't quite understand. I talk about my experiences, the good and the bad. We're constantly re-victimizing people by putting the blame on them. So that's why I like to speak on behalf of victims, especially the ones that don't have voices or are unable to speak. One thing that Misty says she has noticed is that blaming victims, especially women and girls, for the crimes perpetrated against them has become less common and less acceptable. She said, everything was blamed on Tanya and I. Everything was our fault. We were walking at night. We were wearing the wrong clothes, whatever the case may be. But you don't hear that much anymore. You hear a lot more people supporting victims of violence. Our view as a society toward victims is growing more compassionate. It really makes me happy that I got to be a small part of that. 
For now, Misty says she is going to spend time with her family and continue to process the news that Driver is gone. She said, it's life-changing. Everybody who's been affected by the Abbotsford killer, I really hope that everybody can have a little bit of peace. I'm thinking a lot about them right now. And that is the story of Misty Cockrell and Tanya Smith. This one had a poetic ending, kind of. He just died. Yeah. She didn't have to do any parole hearings. Not that I really know of. Maybe she had to do one or two, but I don't, I don't think so. Yeah. Which is great. I'm glad she didn't have to. Yeah, and I can't believe one man caused so much resources and energy. And trauma and, and chaos. chaos. And chaos. Yeah, it's awful. Fear. How long did it take to catch him? Seven months. Seven months. Mm-hmm. That's a long time. That yeah. whole town is basically on lockdown for over half a year. Mm-hmm. People were legitimately leaving. Who can blame them? I mean, it's either that or live your life in fear every day, mm-hmm. especially if you have daughters. Absolutely. I would be gone. Yeah, absolutely. Also, it's crazy that in this story, there were so many seemingly new forensic techniques. Yeah, absolutely. It was really great police work. Yeah, I was thinking the whole time, I have yet to hear a mistake. Yeah, they all did very good work. It was very quick. Yeah. Very thorough. Seemingly flawless. I mean, I know it took seven months to get him, but they had nothing. It wasn't really because of them. It was like, right. just, it was because he was a psycho. <laughs> like, yeah. He was just. And incredibly effective and lucky. Yeah. He knew what he was doing. I guess he must have really taken note of like his father's line of work, you know? Yeah. And having him be his father just gives you another layer of, oh, it wouldn't be him. Right? Maybe. Yeah. Just, I guess, what I don't even know what to call it, but just. Like, socially, no one would expect it to be him. I think when people did find out that it was him, it was shocking. Like, people did not expect it to be Terry. Yeah. And that's always so crazy to me, that there was no, there was nothing. There was no signs. I'm sure there had to be some kind of something. Like, he was obviously a violent man. Right, that's what I was thinking. I mean, he was violent throughout his childhood, which ended up having him being placed in like a special school. He was kind of an outcast. He was, you know, he had certain environmental factors. Yeah, well, certain environmental factors, but certain like I'm trying to think of the personality right word. traits. Certain indicators along the way that might suggest like, hmm, this guy is not necessarily. I don't want to say normal, but like without problems. Yeah, without problems, but. Yeah, I, I think I think it was a little shocking for people to be like, hmm, this is crazy that this guy is actually doing all this crazy shit. Yeah, and especially in their town. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I didn't know Canada had a Bible belt. Me neither. The more you know. But thank you, Mom. Yeah. For turning him in. Jeez. That must have been hard. Unless he was really shitty son. And you uh, know what? I, 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 I feel like maybe, but even then... Even then, I'm I'm sure it was difficult, but, like, if your son murdered a girl and attacked another with a baseball bat, like, You gotta. Goodbye. Yeah, you gotta do it. Easier said than done, though. I'm sure it is. I'm sure it is. And, like, you know, I don't have a son, so I can't say how difficult that would be. (laughs) You're already like, fuck this kid. (laughs) No, I can't say how difficult that would be. I'm sure you have, like, the love for your child, and it would be so, like, heartbreaking in like a crazy motherly way but also 
I can still, you know, understand that maybe you would feel some kind of motherly love in like a profound way, but also understand that you need to go to prison because you are a menace to society. Yeah. You know, like you are yep. a danger. You're actively attacking people and causing absolute chaos. And you're like, what? It's seven months of hell for this town. Like, yeah. go away. Yeah. You need to be put away, sir. Yeah, I would say you have to go. Yeah, I, I would agree. So anyway, let's get out of there. That, that's quite what, enough. What's your good thing this yeah, week? Yeah, I was going to say. Um, hmm. Ooh, I know. My good thing is Yellow Jackets. Great show. We just started it, um, and it's really good. And we've, we've been, been binging it. Yeah, we've been staying up late past our bedtime. We've been naughty. Yeah. <laughs> we've been bad. A little bit. We've been staying up late. But, you know, if you have a glass of wine and focaccia, I mean, it's kind of a no-brainer. A glass of wine and focaccia. Wow, California has really changed me in a profound way. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God. No, it's true. It was delightful last night. It was really nice. It was. And we stayed up till almost two in the morning on a a weeknight? On a school night? On a school night? Oh, my God. What's your good thing? My good thing is that I'm going to golf this weekend for the first time in like a month and a half. Wow, that's such a new good thing. I don't care. <laughs> Simply don't care, Queen. I We've never heard that one. You sh- shut up. I uh, I had stitches for forever and now I get to go live my best life. I know we have no idea about my your stitches or your golf. Just stop it. I'm sorry. I'll stop being a jerk. Let me have this moment. Okay, what are we do- what, what are we doing? This, this is, is my I'm good sorry. thing. This is like the good thing. I'll stop being a jerk. Okay. Yeah. This is we're, are we reframing? Yeah, Please let's reframe. Let's reframe. What's your good thing? No, no, no. You reframe. Okay, I'll your re- negative comments. I'll reframe. No stitches. You get to play golf. You love that. Oh my god, I'm so happy for you. I'm so happy that you like that. I'm so happy that you like that. Oh, I'm so happy that you like that. Anyways, thank you guys so much for listening. If you would like to look at all the pictures we post of all the stories we talk about, check us out on Instagram at nottoday underscore podcast. If you would like to check out our Patreon, you get access to all of our bonus episodes. We have a bunch over there. You can support us and access to our Discord server, which is super fun. Check it out, patreon.com slash nottodaypodcast. If you or anyone you know has a story of survival or a near-death experience that you would like to share with us and possibly hear on an upcoming listeners episode, send it to knowtodaypodcast at gmail.com. We have a TikTok that is not today podcast and a Twitter that is not today podcast, but the T on the end of podcast is a three. Because that makes sense. And just keep breathing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>